Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Before we get started, I just have to take a minute to thank each one of my generous patrons for your part in keeping this podcast going. I could not continue to do it without you, so thank you so much. If you're not a patron yet, but you love the show and you listen regularly, please consider becoming a patron. It's really easy to do and it doesn't have to break the bank. Just head over to theundrapedartist.com and click on the link, Be My Patron on Podbean. And then choose a monthly donation amount that fits your budget. It's that simple. And to thank you for your generous donations, once you've reached $100 in total contributions, send me an email to theundrapedartist at gmail.com and I will send you one of our spectacular Undraped Artist aprons. Thank you again for your support. Thank you for watching and listening. Hope you enjoy the episode. Lucas Benoni, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm a huge fan. So I'm really excited to kind of figure out how you think and uh, what what motivates you and stuff. But first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into the art field, maybe a little bit about your past, your education and so on. Yeah, well, I started really early on. Uh, I started taking art classes when I was a little kid and my mom used to teach a summer art camp so I would I would join the other kids there and at some point I wanted to get a little bit more serious and it was at a really young age so at at seven years old my mom had to sign a waiver uh, for me to take nude figure drawing classes what? because I was under the age of 18 and seven <laughs> years old. Yeah. Yeah. So I, she signed this waiver. Wait, I'm wait, taking... wait, 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 don't wait. Okay. Yeah. But what, why, how does a seven year old even know about nude figure drawing classes? And how does a seven year old come to have that desire? There's gotta be more to the story. Yeah. I was just always obsessed with the old great masters and I was doing master copies and one time I even got in trouble in elementary school because they said, you you know, you can't be drawing these figures. And and my mom got really upset. She was like, how, you know, how could you uh, try to sus suspend a kid that is just doing master copies of, uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. this is this, you might have, you might have uh, taken the cake on this one because, I have never heard anything like this. So at seven years old, you're in school copying Leonardo da Vinci nudes and other old master nudes. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I got in trouble for it. And she said, no, he takes this really serious. You know, you gotta let him do this type of artwork. And, um, and so then I was taking the figurative classes, I was, uh studying the old great masters 
And at the time living in Los Angeles, I'm, I'm from Los Angeles, uh, I was also doing a little bit of acting on the side. And I, the, the biggest role I had was just being an extra in Magnolia with Tom Cruise. Oh, that's awesome. And, yeah, and I was nine years old uh, by then. And I said to my parents, I want to quit acting because it's distracting me from art, uh, <laughs> from visual arts. And I want to just be a painter. At nine years old. <laughs> At nine years old. And I, I never changed my mind. I tried all sorts of different things uh, that I really, I really loved, but I never was as passionate as you know, my passion for painting. So I continued my studies on the side. I was never, you know, I was never sort of in this rigor of working every day because I, I was a, a, a student in school in high school and middle school and all. But when I got to high school, I was starting to take weekend classes at Pasadena Art Center and that's when I felt I was getting more, um, you know, more serious. And and from there, I was in community college. And with that, I used the credits to study abroad in Italy. Then I studied in Buenos Aires. Then I ended up in San Francisco, uh, where I got my BFA. And then I ended up in New York, uh, where I went to an atelier for four years. So it was it was a lot of studying. It was eleven years of studying. Eleven I, years, eleven not years not including not, your classes as a seven year old I, and through high school. Yeah, not including that. Just at, right out of high school, from from two thousand ten till two thousand twenty one, I was full time, nonstop, like no. No breaks. <laughs> All wow. gas, no breaks. <laughs> 11 years. Yeah. That's awesome. Man, I hope my students hear this because occasionally I'll get a student come in and they're a beginner and they'll say, look, I've got two years to become a professional artist. So we, we got to get cracking here. And I'm like, two years? <laughs> That's insanity. There's no way. So it's, it's great that you put in that much time. And it, I mean, because it really takes a lot of time to get to a high level oh yeah yeah i mean and i'm still learning and i'm still researching and like investigating all these sorts of concept concepts not only with technique but just what art means to us as as individuals and through all of like through all the studying that i did i found that everyone works differently even if it's within the same category of realism let's say everyone is working completely different both in the atelier world um and in you know the impressionist world or uh the university setting everyone is working so different from each other we all are expressing virtuosity in some sort of way in in the category of realism but I do find that we have our own unique voice of expressing it. And I thought that going to an atelier um, meant that I was going to become a robot or something. Yeah. Uh, that was, I was going to be like a clone. And when I went there, uh, I, I recall there was um, 
like a like a teacher demo and every instructor worked in completely different mediums completely different styles uh and i said whoa this is so much different uh than i thought it would be and i was i was warned that i was going to become you know this this sort of artist that's going to be isolated in a little bubble and and forget what um expression is all about in yeah. and your but it, it it really wasn't um what i found was the case i i really found that uh studying in these different sort of fields and schools led up to who i am today and i do feel like i did it sort of out of order like mm -hmm. i i was with more like an impressionistic kind of style and then later i did atelier and and i wanted to really focus on foundations so i i do feel like i did it out of order but in the way that i did it out of order i was able to hold on to my voice and understand what i want to say with all of this hmm so what atelier did you attend so i i went to a grand central atelier for okay. four years okay and I went to, uh, prior to that, I went to Academy of Art University in San Francisco for five years. Wow. So, I mean, how much did going to the Institute in San Francisco affect your outlook on art now that you've been through the Atelier, though? Do you think you would have ended up where you're at now if you had just gone to Grand Central Academy? No, no, I, I don't feel that way. I like I feel like I would have really uh, been honed in to a very rigid approach and probably would be too scared to experiment and go outside of my comfort zone. I would most likely be doing what I feel is is safe and and setting up the figures in a sort of way and composing in a sort of way. I mean, really, um, the the way that they work is from natural light and from life and we weren't allowed to work from photos so it would have um it would have really changed who i am today if if i would have only been an atelier i hmm. i have the sort of tools to understand that art can be made in so many different ways i love working from life or from photos i I like mixing them. I'm doing a painting right now where I'm painting flowers from life that are dried and it allows me to paint them like if they're like a cast. Mm -hmm. So doing this sort of cast painting of flowers, let's say, because they're dried and they're not moving. But at the same time, uh, my reference is a photo reference that is collaging the these flowers with other sort of elements. So I'm painting both from photo and, and from life, and I'm juxtaposing them together uh, so that I can sort of feel a three-dimensional character inside of the collage that can break the picture plane a little bit, but then also have flatter elements and, and also sort of end up with a piece that allows me to experiment and take risks. I, I do feel like uh, there's this sort of way of working in the atelier setting where you just put the thing in front of you and you start painting. All right. And I find that it's very admirable 
take a, a study all the way to the finish and and really get something amazing out of it. But I, I do find that as artists, we need to play. We need to be playful. You know, if if we're sort of butting our head against the wall because we're not succeeding at making something virtuous enough and and like the plane like the way that the picture plane is expressed is on the static side of things i i just feel like it can suck the life out of what we're here for and and why we make art i feel like we make art because of culture yeah we're, we're contributing to culture and and beauty and and we're we're being playful and in the playfulness the the spectator can feel the joy inside of the layers of paint and and want to have that joy you know collected yeah yeah so you you said that when you went to grand central academy you felt like there was a diversity in styles and diversity in technique but yet but yet you also said that you wouldn't you don't think you'd be as an expressive of a painter if you hadn't gone to other institutions. And yeah. I have to admit the re the, the reason I wanted to interview you is because you don't look like you came out of an atelier. So I have to admit that I buy into that stereotype too, because I would argue that 90% of people coming out of ateliers look like they came out of an atelier, whereas you don't. If I had not known that you went to Grand Central Academy. I mean, I did know because I've been following you, but I, I, I would, I mean, I wouldn't have guessed it. So, I mean, maybe you could speak to that a little bit more. And I'm curious how you broke the mold, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, first off, I really admire your work. Oh, thank you. And I, I was um, able to see it in person for the first time in 2017 because we were actually in a group show together and we were hung uh, very oh, close. Oh, what was to that? It was um, it was ARC in 2017, and I flew in for for that show because I I had um, been living in the West Coast and I went up to your painting and there was like uh, like a rim lighting that was like fluorescent peak pink around oh um, that was of juju so, that little paint portrait of juju yeah yeah the little portrait of juju and i'm looking at that and i was just like whoa i was mind blown no thank uh, you i like that fluorescent color and how vivid and like i spent more time looking at at that painting than anything else it was just really breathtaking and um yeah so actually since then i've i've been a huge fan and before uh, then of course, but when I saw your work in person, I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, so I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, but I, I definitely feel like, um, like, like that work is is like, I mean, in a atelier setting, it's like, wow, like that's fluorescent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, no, I I feel that I, like I was mentioning earlier, I've I've never really changed my mind on becoming a painter one day, I always sort of had this idea that I wanted to be a painter. And at the same time, I feel like I also knew in a way who I wanted to be. 
and I wanted to add tools to my toolbox to be that person. And, and so even though I was going through all these different schools of thought, I never fell in to the schools of thought as a sort of servant to right. school, but more as like, I'm going to, I'm going to grab what they're preaching and I'm going to put it in my toolbox and like really figure out how that can contribute to the type of art that I want to make. Now, as a student, I really wanted to follow what they were instructing. I, I find that any, any sort of student out there that's being more, um, let's say rebellious and saying like, well, the teacher said to do this, but I, I like to do it this way. I really find like yeah. you, you, don't, you don't get it. No, <laughs> you don't no. What's the so, point of going to school if you're going to have that attitude? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I really wanted to really understand what they were preaching and go full throttle with, with that, what that was. And I mean, to the extent that I'm, I'm actually an instructor now in Grand Central Atelier and, and I'm teaching the core program because I, I have like an obsession to the way that we could truly uh, create form and, and truly create uh, light and, and color and have it express those three dimensional qualities. Like I, I, I really nerd out on these types of things. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, like, uh, like the books I read are, are always scientific books on like physics and, and stuff. And I'm like, always asking these really nerdy questions. Oh I man, felt... that's funny. We got a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy we have that in common. It's, it's so important to understand why conventions are made. Yeah. Um, and, and then also, you know, not shut the door on conventions, but investigate like scientifically why something works and why the convention was made and you can pick and choose, you know, oh, I, for this, I want to use a convention. And for this, I want to really uh, think of it academically. And mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I just, I just really find that it, it, it opens doors. Like it really opens doors. Um, and I, I really did feel that just going to this type of setting where I could nerd out all the way. I understood just how much I, I knew about painting. It was very little. I really knew um, so little about how the world works. When I first um, moved to New York and wanted to pursue this sort of academic approach. So uh, to, to rewind a little bit, when I was studying abroad, I was studying in, in Florence and of course, in the Atelier world, everyone's asking me, oh, so you, you studied at Florence Academy. And I, I said, I actually was in, in a not so well-known school uh, doing abstract painting. You were, <laughs> and, no way. Yeah, so I was doing abstract painting and installation and, um, and I, my my master copies back then were of like Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiele. Oh and man, I awesome! Really yeah, um, and my I remember my dad saying, 
you should be doing your foundations and me saying, why would I do my foundations if I'm going to, if I'm going to be an expressive painter? And I find that to this day, people are asking me that same question that I asked myself, you know, like, why would I do this? Um, that, that I was telling my parents. Um, and I find that I'll always tell them, no matter how loose you want to be or how expressive you want to be or how abstract you want to be, it's so important to learn the foundations. So important. I mean, Im imagine you, you're trying to be expressive and you don't have those tools to make the moments that you want to be truthful actually truthful. It shows through the paint. It really, um, you know, we're we're visual artists, so like we we really depict our knowledge on our our surface. So I found that when I did the foundations, I understood that I like I really didn't know what I was thinking back then because it is so important to understand how to truly make something feel tangible and like it's going to pop out of the canvas and at the same time use that to your advantage and if and if someone wants to be abstract um it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be abstract forever you know what if yeah. 20 years down the line they're like you know I actually want to put some real elements into my work or I, I want to get a little bit tighter. I've, I've seen it happen before. U usually it's reversed, right? Usually the artist is tighter and then loosens up over the years, but I've seen it reversed. And in, in a, I, I saw a solo exhibition in Manhattan where I said, wow, I barely recognize this artist. He's doing everything in reverse. He was expressive 10 years ago and now he's, he's really tight. And those are the types of things that you can sort of reconstruct, reinvent, you know, you could take things apart and put them back together. You're, you're completely limitless. Um, so if anything, when, when someone says, you know, I, I want to uh, be expressive because being realistic is limiting it, I feel it's the reverse. I feel like the lack of knowledge is is uh, limiting, and so you should explore all avenues and have the options rather than being funneled into just one approach because of your means of education. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, and you're not the first one on the podcast to address that issue either. I mean, I think many of us agree with that. So, but I hate to go backwards, but I just can't get this out of my mind. So. I want to know more about your parents because first of all, at seven years old, and I want to know a little bit more about where you were at then too. And mm -hmm. cause it's seven years old. Um, my, first of all, I didn't even know what an old master was at seven years old. I literally didn't know who Da Vinci was or Michelangelo was or any Rembrandt was. So that's one. Yeah. I don't understand how you could have been doing master copies when many of us didn't even know what an old master was, all we knew about was where the playground was located. And right. that's the first thing I'd love to hear more about, but also that your father, one, that your parents were so supportive to the degree that they signed this waiver and then supported you going all over the world and studying. 
but also that your father had the wisdom to tell you to go do the, or study the fundamentals. I mean, tell me a little bit more about your parents. How, what kind of people are they and how did they know to be so supportive of this? Yeah, yeah, they were, they were extremely supportive. And I'm really grateful for that because I always hear stories about artists that, that struggled with that. Uh, parents that wanted them to be a doctor or a lawyer and yeah. <laughs> had been an artist. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, although my parents didn't think I had the potential to be a doctor or a lawyer, but they wanted me to be something like a garbage man or something. <laughs> Not that something there's anything wrong with that. Not there's anything <laughs> wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a more logical nine to five kind of thing. Right. Secure. Something more secure. Exactly. Uh, well, so my, my dad, he was an architect and I, I find that that's probably why he wanted me to do the foundations. He, he was very, uh, very strict, very mathematical, like really knew, um, sort of how to make the structure and the foundation of the houses he was mm. sort of uh, designing or he, he was designing all sorts of things in Los Angeles. Um, but I find that that's probably where it came from is because he was an architect, he most likely wanted me to have a foundation and a structure and, okay. and build that. Um, so he was an artist in his own right as an architect. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he he was an artist uh, in his own right for sure, and he was drawing plans uh, hand drawn before AutoCAD, and he was also um, doing little paintings on the side. Okay, so he definitely he was definitely an, an artist. I I really saw him as an as an artist. I I saw uh, like like watercolors of houses he did, and and I said. Yeah, this he he would try to say that he wasn't in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you you read any art history book, and when they dive into uh, everything that Leonardo da Vinci was doing or Michelangelo, you're like, yeah, they were an architect, an inventor, uh, an artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were everything. Mm -hmm. um, now we're subcategorizing. Uh, architects and illustrators and animators and it, it almost feels like everything is completely different but back then it was all it was all one yeah um so so yeah i always saw him as an artist and then my mom she um like i was saying earlier she she taught in an art camp so she ha she had a little uh school and every summer she would do an art camp and i would join them oh okay and, yeah yeah, so she was teaching art to the kids, and I had I had like an infinite supply of art materials because she had all the art materials because the art camp was in in our house, right? So oh, okay. Every, yeah, so you grew up in an art school, basically, <laughs> a little art yeah, school. Yeah, basically an art school. Like half of our house was an art school, and the other half was our house, and and so the kids were were there. And they, it was like a preschool, right? And they had art class there. And then in the summer, it was just completely just art school. And hmm. so I had that opportunity to use all these different materials and play around with them. And even, you know, 
even as a teenager, I found that I would go into that art school and like get some materials and make some artwork and put it back in the art school. Mm. <laughs> so it was, it, it was really, um, it was really nice how they were supportive and at the same time they appreciated uh painting and drawing and so they would take me to the getty museum and the lacma and the hammer museum and all the all these different museums in los angeles and i i i was pretty um i was pretty spoiled in that regard because i was like oh yeah all parents are really supportive but but yeah that's it, not the case most of the time or, or at least half of the time uh it's really hard to get um support from parents when it has to do with making art because it doesn't feel like a feasible sort of profession but no yeah there i was in the getty uh like once a month i was going to the getty with my with my mom and my family and and i found that uh at a very early age i was drawn to rembrandt so there's um there's a portrait there um and it's it's called something like laughing rembrandt it's a self-portrait by rembrandt where he's laughing and it's a small painting and it's just amazing i mean to this day it's one of my favorite paintings the, mm. these like uh like pink zones in the in the cheeks and these like yellow zones in the forehead and and then there's like these dull grays and and rembrandt's laughing and I mean, the the painting is is such a little gem that not a lot of people know about because it's really tiny. I think it's something like twelve by sixteen or hmm. eleven by fourteen. So it's just this little tiny this little tiny gem that allows you to peek into the brain of Rembrandt because it felt like it was done quickly but just right. So you're able to see how his brain was working or you know probably developing the painting all the way to a finish so it's right at the in-between where where you're saying oh i could see his decisions and and that openness about it made it feel also really contemporary like you, when you look at that painting you really can't tell from what era it was made it could have been painted five years ago hmm yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's interesting you say that because in 2008, from 2008 to 2011, I quit selling paintings for three years to kind of switch my style. I was tired of what I was doing, and I was one of those artists that went tighter and then decided I wanted to yeah. be more of a classical painter. And I spent some time going back and forth to L.A. to see paintings like that one, including that one and and mm. really get in the head of rembrandt and i've just i would i would look at the rembrandt paintings because he, he's i i agree with you he's i mean i'm with you and that he was one of my favorites as well um i'd look yeah. at the rembrandt paintings then i'd come home and i would try and mimic what i saw and then i'd go back and i'd figure out what i had done wrong and then i'd come home and try and mimic what i saw i mean these these trips were years months and years apart but um, but still it was, I, I'm with you. It was a, such an amazing painter and a huge influence. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and here at the Met, uh, I'm able to see in, um, it, there, there's like a sort of salon inside of the Met where they have his artworks and there that are 
I feel like they're perfectly chronological order because I could really see sort of earlier Rembrandt where his technique is is flawless and like it, it's it's going from like the transparent thin washes to to like the thicker but not so thick like later Rembrandt so you're really able to like see this kind of academic uh, portrait that's really well done and then you're as you walk along you're able to see he's getting a little bit looser and a little bit thicker and then by the time you're at sort of the middle of the salon he's, it's like really thick he's like globbing the paint on there and it it really feels like he sort of was trying to reinvent what texture meant in the world uh, and how could it how it could be used as a sort of sculptural element to also depict the way light falls in a painting. So, and, you know, to be honest, I stare at the academic one because I'm, I'm like, oh, the academic ones, those are the ones where I can really understand uh, sort of what is underneath all of these layer, layers of paint and thick globs in the later works. The later works, it's, it's expressive enough to where you're like, you know, how was he thinking? I don't understand how he was thinking. It's all hidden under these globs mm -hmm. of paint texture, and it's all it's all under there. So yeah, I I find like his his earlier works, I could really explore that. Um, What's your favorite? His earlier work or his later work? I would say, hmm, I <laughs> that's that's tough to say. Um, I would say his earlier work. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah, yeah me too. A lot of people work. don't think that, but I remember there was an artist on uh, Instagram that put that question out. I can't remember who it was now. And mm -hmm. I felt I felt like uh, some kind of a horrible human to say earlier work because I was so outnumbered. <laughs> yeah. I was like, is there something wrong with me? I don't know. But yeah, I prefer his earlier work as well. I mean, I love it all, but. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, for example, if we're talking about Turner, right? Turner's seascapes. I like his later work. I would say. I agree with right? that too. Yeah. Where it becomes so loose and so expressive that you're you're just seeing like a veil of of high key white and these colors that are ex barely expressing the scene, and something about it, you're you're just left with the sort of mystery about the scene and how you want to resolve the scene yourself in your head and put the pieces together within like the misty fog of white. Whereas like his earlier work, it, it seems very, um, very illustrative of, of the scene, very uh, sort of clear and, and straight to the point. And I, I, I find his later work, it's like a breath of fresh air. You, you look mm -hmm. at it and you're, you're just like, I can find new things in this painting every time. And it's so, it's so mysterious how the use of white can like fog something up. Or on the flip side, you know, if something's extremely dark, how it can mystify the work because everything's dark, like, like the Night Watch. Uh, you know, by Rembrandt, for example, like, like, that's a very mysterious painting. But I, I find that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, with with Monet, also later works, I would say. 
Yeah, uh, I haven't thought about Monet. I have to think about that. So I don't usually ask this question, but I'm really curious now that you've mentioned a few artists that you've both copied and clearly or, in, or clearly like. Is there is there any one or few artists that you're really influenced by in your work now? Yeah, yeah. I I have this um I have this weird kind of way of thinking I feel where I love old masters and then I also love um like contemporary painters that are of the like abstract expressionist movement. So I'm I'm like just loving both worlds so much that um I would say I I really like the works of Lee Krasner. Um she was the the wife of Jackson Pollock. Hmm. I'm not so much a fan of of Jackson Pollock's work, but Lee Krasner had this sort of uh like bubbly uh rhythmic way of working. Like you could see these like beautiful huge arabesques in the work uh that that were composed just so nicely and um i also uh am drawn to installation artists i really like the work of donna huanca she's a living artist she does um installation work where she puts uh white sand in a gallery space and installation work that's made of different materials and at the same time she paints on top of models that are doing contemporary dance very slowly around the works around the installations on the white sand and when i uh when i'm looking for ex when i'm looking for some sort of inspiration i find that of course <laughs> of course we always are scrolling through instagram and we're like oh i'd like to do that and i'd like to do that and and uh there's there's so much like such an overstimulation of of work uh out there and sometimes we feel like we want to do it all yeah no kidding. <laughs> but, uh, yeah um but i i do find that i'll sort of reminisce over the works of um of lee krasner joan mitchell is another uh artist that I, I really admire how she, how she was using the white background and doing uh, sort of the abstraction on top of the white background and it was sort of opening like a new dimension where you can go into the white background of nothingness hmm. and go behind Let's, the paint. I want to look at yeah let me let me pull up some of these artists. Donna Huanco. This is so. This is the sand artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you could see that the spaces have sand on the ground, and uh, there's there's models that are doing very slow contemporary dance around oh, yeah, the installation. Like right here. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Where where yeah. did you first see this work? You know. Um, I actually, f I found her on the inter internet and later on, I was seeing her work in person, like in various art fairs, like Miami Art Basel or, or like Freeze. And I found that, um, that her work is enjoyed in a gallery space, not in an art fair as much because in an art fair, 
they only have enough room to display her paintings, right. but they don't have enough room to have the full experience with with the painted models and the installation work, etc. So I do find that um, that if if you see her work ever in person, probably on the opening where the whole sort of experience is demonstrated would be a good way to experience her work. Yeah, so I have um I have a sort of obsession of like of like looking through all the, like the different like painted models and 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 seeing them as being three-dimensional because they're living breathing human beings just right. with the uh, abstraction on them and I start to realize you know like like oh, I can I could sort of um you know, paint a figure and think of how a brushstroke that isn't so virtuous, a brushstroke that's a little more arbitrary in terms of color or in terms of value, how that would land on top of the form if it were to be part of this figure. Right. And, and I find that her work helps me sort of um, manifest that where I'm I'm seeing how uh the expression of the figure is is three dimensional because these are three dimensional human beings mm -hmm. and how that can be done with paint so i really like just how there's this very thin line between the the two worlds of you know are the models the painting or is the installation the painting or are the paintings the painting it, they're they're all sort of the the painting they're all the experience and um hmm. And I like to think of that in my work. I like to think of how I can have three-dimensional abstraction. I can have flat abstraction. I can have uh, areas that are that are really truthful, but I could also have areas that aren't truth truthful and and that really can tell the viewer this is a painting. Yeah, and all different elements are sort of how my my brain works um and and the other artists um you know that i mentioned they're they're part of the abstract expressionist movement i i also love uh the work of of cecily brown okay oh, you got it see. yeah 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 so she's a living artist yeah she's a figurative yeah, so she's a figurative painter, and um, but she's. I I remember having this this discussion uh, like many many years ago during my thesis um, while I was doing my BFA that there's sort of levels of of abstraction, right? There's realism all the way to abstraction, and we were told to put a check mark where we feel we fall on this line between abstraction and realism. And I remember putting the check mark kind of like three quarters towards abstraction. Really? Um so I yeah. Um but I I I don't feel like um I'm kind of three quarter I feel like I'm kind of halfway <laughs> halfway between the two worlds.
Yeah. Yeah. I feel I, yeah. I could see that. I could I could see three quarters too, because your figures your figures are painted with an abstract surface. I don't know how else to put that. I'm kind of blown away with the influence of Donna Huanca. I mean, it's like you, you could smash her work into a flat plane and yeah. it's very going to be very similar to what you're doing, which, and I, and I, I think that's a great, I think that's a cool thing. You've taken something three-dimensional and made it your own on a two-dimensional surface. But I never, I never would have um, put that together if you hadn't haven't showed us that. Yeah, and I th I think also it's the pre appreciation towards working in a sculptural manner. Yeah, um, I had developed over the years in an in an academic setting because really um, you could draw inspiration from so many places. Like I draw inspiration from fashion also, like uh, hmm. like John Paul Gaultier uh, fashion show late eighties, like um, from from like so many different, like, like, uh, fashion runway of like Mugler, like there's like so many different things out there where the figure is sort of used more like a prop rather than the main focus. And so uh, like these fashion models, they sort of look like aliens in a way, right? They're, yeah. they're like very tall. They look very exotic um they don't look like regular people and and so like their beauty is in how exotic they look so then these these people that have these really unique features they're sort of decorated with fashion and they're used as as a sort of element to express the clothing rather than how a figurative painter or a portrait painter it, the the main focus is the portrait or the main focus is the figure i like i like to think of it as that um the figure and the portrait can can be used as an element to better express what you want to say so the then in the fashion world um the person as a prop i find to be really interesting because then you see how how, clo how clothing is draping the figure in a sort of way that's that's not so common. And then you say, well, what if the clothing going across diagonally on that figure were to be a brushstroke? And, and then you're able to see hmm. how, how the clothing is sort of wrapping around the figure and how a brushstroke can wrap around the figure and in a sort of way that's uncommon. So I'm, I'm looking at... Um, installation art fashion shows um i i like donna huanca so much because she's kind of meshing a lot of these ideas i have about art uh together mm -hmm. and then I, I also really enjoy um like the other artists like lee krasner and and joan mitchell just just from the way that their compositions are are made Okay, so this is is this an example of Lee Krasner's work then? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 You, you see how the, the arabesque plays a big role in her work. There's so much rhythm. Yeah, I really yeah, I'm you've got great taste in abstract. I mean that's subjective, of course, right? But I'm with yeah. you on all this stuff. These are some great abstract artists that you've mentioned.
You know what I think I'm drawn to in their work is that there's a formal quality to their work. It's not just chaos. There's, mm. there's definitely, um, like a system, a system. Developed. Yeah. 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 And I don't know why I need that in painting. It makes it feel more human and less random to me. Right, right. Like it's almost like a system that, that they had developed. And then in the exploration of that system, they start making sense of it and developing it and improving upon it. Mm -hmm. And what they made becomes the best version of who they are and and what they came up with yeah which is the same with all the old great masters like like titian and and rembrandt and velasquez they're all extremely different from each other um how how velasquez is is sort of showing everything and in, in in a sort of optical manner and the way that the air is also part of the composition in Velasquez or how Titian is like very, like, um, very monumentous and, and like very fluid and, and how it's like so dramatic. And, but then like we were talking about earlier, like Rembrandt has his own way of sort of talking with, with texture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Mitchell. that's Joan Mitchell. I wanted to pull her up as well. Yeah. Now, Joan Mitchell, I have, I had heard of. And I also really like these abstract paintings, man. Yeah. These are great. Yeah. And, um, it, actually, uh, I love Joan Mitchell, she, she brings up something, uh, in my head, actually, um, in my last solo exhibition in Manhattan, um, I had done a painting that utilized uh, quite a bit of white background. And I just remember the owner asking me if the painting was, was finished or not. And I, <laughs> I said, hey, it's finished. I finished it using, using white background as one of the parts of the painting that complete the painting. <laughs> and, um, and I, I was like, if Joan Mitchell can do it, I can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which ex which explains why the development at art of art has taken five hundred years to get to where we're at because we all lean on the shoulders of those before us, you know, and because yeah. it, it does yeah. take courage to do these things and and the cavemen didn't have the guts or foresight to do what Joan Mitchell's doing. They had to kind of <laughs> said the rest of the cavemen would have been making fun of them. Like, what's the matter with you? Can't you draw a goat? You know. Right. <laughs> But, but, you know, we've had to kind of work up the courage over the past 500 years of oil painting. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had to destroy the art idea of what is art and reinvent it. And when we get too good at reinventing it, we have to destroy it again. And it's like, uh, like Duchamp's bicycle wheel, right? Yeah. Where he puts on top of the stool taking the functionality out of the work and it's left as just uh something to appreciate as beauty and we rethink what it is and a lot of the times when i'm when i'm painting i like to i like to rethink what what beauty is um and i think maybe that's why i like to work with dried flowers sometimes not only because it's kind of like working from a cast mm -hmm. but also 
Um, someone can say that a dead rose is something ugly, uh, but someone else can say that that it's beautiful, um, like like Sigmund Freud's Uncanny. I, I don't know if you've read that article before, but I haven't. Sigmund, he talks about the uncanny, and it's a really interesting article to read because you understand how the ugly can be appreciated just as much as as the the beautiful right like i mean sigmund it, anyone, freud like, not lucian freud but sigmund freud sigmund freud yeah sigmund freud talks about about the ugly about huh. the uncanny and it's it's really interesting because i almost feel like um I've always been able to appreciate the the grotesque um just as much as the beautiful and when I when I mix the grotesque with beauty and sometimes I'll get weird feedback like like oh why would you use that or or this is a strange subject to use and and I'll I'll just be like, oh I didn't think of it that way I just thought of it as as all being beautiful and I, I think a good example of that is um, is Tim Burton, right? Like Tim Burton, I, I see so much beauty, um, but everything is actually kind of with an undertone of like some sort of demonic idea or some ugliness. But um, but the ugliness is um, you could appreciate it in in sort of like a celebration or in a naive way of of mm -hmm. like how how like like death could be beautiful in mm -hmm. a way um uh just how much like life can be beautiful and and so when i paint a still life i like the pain the painting i'm doing right now is with is with flowers that are dried but also flowers that are living hmm. um and I'm, I'm sort of i mesh them together Okay, so let's go to your Instagram account and look at those because I did see, I did see one. I think it was this one where it shows. Yeah, here we go. Oh yeah, those are dried. Yeah, dried. Is this the this the painting you're referring to? Oh, I'm I'm working uh, like six or seven paintings at the same time. I can I can physically grab it right now if you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's see it. But, let's see it. Let's see it. Yeah. So this is where oh, I'm okay. at right now. Wow. And those those are dead flowers too. Yeah, I guess they are kind of. Yeah, man, these, that's beautiful. These are, they're all dead, and then um, this this lime green one down here. Um, here. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> you reversed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that lime green one is alive. Okay. Uh, I haven't finished it. I started that one last night. Wow. But, yeah. So. So they're they're living flowers. They're they're flowers that are dried, and they're all mixed together. Um, I would say because the flowers are done from life, and that's what's taking the longest. Uh, it's it's probably more of like, yeah, maybe like three quarters of the time I'm spending more on like working from life and. The rest is from photography, like the mm -hmm. other quarter. Mm -hmm. And um, the background is actually uh, a broken subway uh, screen. 
What? Because uh, really, yeah, in in New York, a lot of the times uh, they'll they'll break the screens, <laughs> and um, like the homeless will like break the screens and stuff. Yeah, and so like, there was a broken screen on the subway, and uh, and I took a photo of it because there was these really interesting purple and blue colors, and the um, and the crack uh, that's coming out around radially is coming around radially around the dried uh, flower, and it's making it look like a saint. So, so you're I, you're finding abstract abstract imagery that happens arbitrarily in nature or in your environment. You're photographing it and copying it like a realist. Mm -hmm. And so it yeah. becomes an abstract yeah. painting that's actually executed from the perspective of a realist painting. Exactly, because a, a broken pixelated screen uh, with Im imagery that's distorted on it is is going to be abstract to the point that we can't make out what it is. But I'm painting huh. it faithfully, <clears throat> and then I'm collaging with uh, real flowers and uh, that I'm painting from life that are dried and, and other flowers that, um, that I've photographed. So really the whole, the whole thing becomes more of like a, like a dialect between nature and technology kind of talking to each other in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes also loose enough to where I feel like I'm I'm taking risks and I'm exper experimenting and and being more playful. I I find that if I were to just be painting flowers and a gray background, I I would probably go a little bit crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be yeah. just spending too much time uh, figuring the scene out. You know, figuring the the qualities of the flower that make them feel really believable. And I find that my my sort of break from doing something really believable is to then break free for a moment and then come back to it. So I'll, I'll be I'll be painting to the best of my ability and really try to make something tangible. And then I'll go I'll go really loose with maybe another flower or maybe uh, with the background. And then I'll go back to that flower, and I have I have then uh, fresh eyes. I have um, sort of taken my inner angst out on other parts of the painting, and then I like come back in, and I can now meditate again and and really be uh, in the moment with the subject because mm. the last thing I want to do is uh, is paint and. Uh, have some sort of uh sort of inner struggle with the subject because you know painting's hard <laughs> so yeah so 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 like and then that inner angst it starts to get louder and louder and louder and i f i find that the only way that i could quiet the inner angst is by um freeing myself for a moment and, and then coming back and and like so so then i really feel like abstraction is a way of me to to play and to have fun um i could take abstraction serious as well uh but i do find that if 
if I'm making an abstract and I start getting serious with the abstract, then I'm saying, oh, I'm taking the fun out of it. Let me go back to the realism portions of this painting and and I'm going to have fun with that. And then when those realism portions get too serious, then I go to the abstraction. So I'm speaking these these two different languages at all times. And the the less I can develop the language, the more curiosity and the more curiosity, the more I can investigate and experiment and have have fun. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I spend a lot of time on uh, each flower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I've yeah. often told I've often had conversations about why we paint the way we paint with my guests and temperament has always been where I've gone. It, it's and this is a perfect example of that. Because you said you would have a hard time just perfectly rendering a flower against a gray background. And sure. um, I think I think there are many artists that would agree with that. But then there are so many artists I've had on the podcast that do these incredible, intricate paintings that are absolutely pristine and precise. And but they clearly or it just seems like they couldn't possibly have the same inner angst that you have or they'd lose their minds, right? So I find it um, kind of refreshing that, you know, that art is, to me at least, it, it seems like it's so connected with our individual personalities that it's almost like we don't have to even try, just kind of let it happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the intuitive process of working is something that I always pursue because if everything is planned out, then I don't, I, I feel like the fun is kind of lost a little bit. Like there's no room for error, error, right? Uh, right. We do the drawing, then we transfer it, then we paint and we're painting in a certain way. And, um, and the background has to be, you know, a, a certain way to make the foreground feel more uh, like virtuous and the lighting needs to always be a 45 degree angle and from natural light because that's pure. And and then we start we start um, almost putting ourselves in a cage like uh, like it has to be this way every single time. Every single thing has to be perfect. But then I find um, I find that when you look at um like sergeant for example it's like some of those figures are frontally lit some of those figures are outside some of mm -hmm. those figures are um in a lighting scenario that would probably be a nightmare to uh someone in in like an academic setting not so, to mention they're 10 heads tall half the time <laughs> Yeah. 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 They're, they're like, uh, idealized. Yeah. Big time. Uh, um, but, I, but I, yeah, I just, I just find that, um, yeah, the sense of plague, it, it can also be done in, in a, like a really like good quality sort of fashion. Um, if you're, t if you're taking risks with maybe the setup, right? Like you could, you could paint it virtuous, like in a virtuous way. Um, but it's like, what if this time the lighting was coming from the side or from below or from the back? And mm -hmm. and I, I find that I, I've seen 
like I've I've seen that in in your work and and that's I that's what I really love about it. Um, like that painting that I told you I saw yeah. in person. I was like I was like whoa that backlit effect wow. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, and the re the reason why I moved to New York was actually because of these these sort of um these sort of painters that make these extremely high quality renditions of figures and in still lifes and portraits and and i was just i've i've always just appreciated it so much that um that i i had moved to new york primarily like only because of uh the atelier that I had gone to and and that I'm teaching at now, and you know Jacob Collins, he's the founder, and I would say, um, you know, he's one of my favorite sort of living artists today in in the realism world, and I find that that what they're doing, I I can appreciate so much. Um, just like the old masters, and that that's something that's that's really important to me. So although although my head's kind of all over the place, and I love abstraction, but I also love realism. Uh, you know, maybe even more than abstraction, and that it's it's such a big part of of who I am. Hmm. That to to think otherwise, I would be neglecting. Um, probably the most important thing about my my upbringing in art which is just the appreciation of good technical ability so i have a question so what is do you have limitations i mean your tastes are so broad i mean you you kind of lost me on when you mentioned duchamp that's where that would be where i would <laughs> that would be where i would draw the line right. like i'd be like yeah, oh, okay now you now you've gone too far but <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. I mean, we're all, you know, we're all entitled to our own taste and opinions, but yeah. so do you have a limit on to where it's just like, okay, now we're just getting ridiculous or now on, on the, on the modernist side, or now it's just getting stale. It's too representational. Or as one of my guests recently put it, it's too much rendering. Right. Um, do you, do you have limits on either extreme in your personal taste? No, I, I I don't have limits in either extreme. In, in fact, when it gets like extremely rendered, and I'm like, yeah. oh my, that's like almost CGI. That's like, well, I get, I get <laughs> I it's like hard to look at. It's like so rendered. I get giddy about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, um, like if if I can only do a, a painting that that's that rendered one day, and then sometimes I'll be like. Like maybe I should just do like a little cast like on the side of my studio, and um and then I'll have like a deadline for for an exhibition or something, and and I'll say oh I can't at the moment, but I I have like that other extreme of of myself where I actually I actually love when it's like extremely like like so well done, um that that the work is like whoa like that thing is like popping out of the canvas. Uh, but I, I, I like also when something is, uh, you know, very abstract as well. 
and and I I have I have you know sat in front of a Rothko and got emotional. Like it's yeah. not just this kind of uh, like cliche. Like oh, you got emotional in front of a Rothko. That's a joke. Or <laughs> like I actually. <laughs> I felt the same feeling that um, that I would get, you know, staring off into the ocean at night. Like yeah. this sort of mystery of life is somewhere in there. And it made me feel uh, all sorts of emotions. But so, did you get emotional staring at Duchamp's urinal? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I feel like Duchamp is more of like an appreciation of pushing the boundaries. Yeah. Um, Speaking of which, uh, when I was a first year in the atelier, um, I had uh, I was taking sculpture mm -hmm. um, as well, and I I learned how to make a release mold from scratch, and I was like, whoa, that release mold is this like crazy blue color, and so <laughs> I made this rubber release mold um, from scratch and covered a sewing machine that I was, it was given to me as a, as a wedding gift, a sewing machine, because um, my friend knew that I would love to paint it one day. So I, I painted the sewing machine. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Someone gave you a sewing machine so that you could paint it. See, when yeah, I got yeah, wedding so... gifts, they didn't give me like a toaster so I could paint the toaster. They actually thought I might make toast. Might <laughs> make toast with it, yeah. <laughs> That's funny, no, yeah. you are a true artist. I brought I brought it all the way from San Francisco. Nice. I I brought this huge sewing machine in my luggage all the way from San Francisco, <laughs> um, and I I painted it. And I was like, okay, I've painted enough times. Now I want to you know cover it in this release mold, and then paint it as this weird blue uh, rubbery object that you could see a sewing machine under under there, kind of. But it's really just um, this like rubbery weird object with something underneath, and and um, that that's sort of like a that's like the Duchamp side of me. Like I'm gonna take the functionality out of this sewing machine so that it could be appreciated as uh, this sort of object that is is beautiful, and that's it. Like it, it doesn't work anymore. The sewing machine has no function to it. It's just a sewing machine that's that's covered. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Okay, I'm really glad we we had this chat because I feel like I'm gonna try a little harder to be a little more open minded. Because I really, I, I mean, I love all kinds of work, but you have you have um, an incredibly broad appreciation which i think is admirable yeah yeah it's it's definitely hard to come by especially in like the academic world yeah um like completely open to everything but no yeah i'm 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 really open to everything um i met jeff coons and we had a long talk about the meaning of art and and he gave me really solid advice and, and wisdom about how I should just always create the work that I, I want to create, no matter what, even, even in the highs and the lows um, of my art career, that I should never give up on it. And I, I, said, I said, wow, this guy, he's like, 
everyone around me in the academic world would um would just be like so against him and everything he's saying <clears throat> but here i am just like realizing that he's a human like just, like we're all we're all human we all have something you know good about us in the world and i found that he was like a really wholesome guy that had really good wisdom he said like really amazing words to me and i don't necessarily like his work so much <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, so there are limits <laughs> yeah, there, there are limits yeah there are limits i would say i'm not a huge fan of of his work like of of like the the like mega artists that are that are making millions um i would say uh david hockney is one that i would appreciate um and jenny seville right they're they're doing very well for themselves but uh, okay i gotta but, yeah, ask they... you though what about david hockney's um what about his book that he wrote where he claims that anyone who draws well in the past was using a camera obscura <laughs> uh well i feel that in the past there was all sorts of tools being used all right. sorts of tools um i i would disagree that everyone was using camera obscura but i would say that like in the past if those artists had all the resources that we had today they would be doing things differently right they right like some of those artists first off would, would be like a film director right like they might not even be a painter or if they had the ability to use a camera obscura or a projector, you know, maybe they'll use like a digital projector instead because it might be easier. Right. But, like, um, but I, I do find that um, that there was all sorts of mechanisms that they were using uh, sight size or uh, glass spheres that were like distorting and like painting through like Hans Holbein who is uh, like painting through a distortion lens in order to put like symbolism in the work. Um, and, and like all these distortion lens and like cat camera obscures and um, sight size techniques. And there was like so, so many tools that were being utilized that, um, that I, I find that they were using a lot of those things. Um, but I also find that they had an ability to draw that yeah. i think that's that, where it falls apart because i think the whole premise of the book is that there's no way they could have drawn that well without the tools no yeah that and I, that's, I just that because that, there are people I, I, living today that draw incredibly well without those tools there are lots of us yeah. exactly yeah. i don't necessarily agree with that it, it, especially since back then um like you would be you would be under the wing of the great master at age 12 mm -hmm. <laughs> you're 17 you're this sort of beast of an artist and you didn't have the distractions of social media yeah seriously those sorts of distractions like you were just in in the studio um painting uh for the great master and then doing your own work after it was time right so, right 
I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that there are many artists um, that have used all sorts of different mechanisms to help them draw better. Right. Uh, I don't think they were a slave to it. I've, I really feel like most of those artists could draw with or without it. Like if, yeah, if, if Hans Holbein were to do uh, a distorted skull in his work, um, I'm not sure if you know which painting I'm talking about. I but do. He, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. If he were to do a distorted skull from his head, I think he could still pull it off, but it would just take him much longer than if he was using a distortion lens. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. He'd still pull it off. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that's a trippy painting. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. okay. We got to get to your work because I'm dying for people yeah. to see this. For those who haven't seen it, I'm excited to show it. It is just incredible. I absolutely love your work. Okay, so here's, it's hard to even formulate a question. It's like, it's like my head is just full of this uh, curiosity without any way of defining it. Um, but okay, here's one question I have when I look at your work. Yes. You seem to manage to maintain the form and you've talked about how you really appreciate painting form. You seem to manage it while, while, while literally globbing paint onto the figure that doesn't match the correct value, doesn't match the correct chroma or edges or any of the things that define form. So yeah. how are you creating, what are you doing to manage that challenge? Is it just trial and error? Yeah, so um, so what I usually think of as I'm painting is I'm I'm thinking of the air behind the figure, and I'm thinking of things that can be floating in front of the figure at the same time. So, for example, like with the main figure, um, like on on her um, torso, like near her belly button, there's like this really dark brush stroke to the right. Mm -hmm. um, uh so uh oh all right so oh, like okay. that oh right here really dark yeah that one that one so that brush stroke is sort of like floating in front of her right so i i want i want a brush stroke to feel like it could be floating like a foot in front of a figure or or six feet in front of a figure i want a brush stroke to feel like instead of it floating in front of the figure, it's literally on top of the figure and a part of the form and a part of that experience of, of crawling around the form is to where you're sort of like a, like a sculptor. And, and I, I like to think of like this idea of like, what if I was blindfolded and the only way that I could go around the figure is if I'm just tapping with my, my fingers and and like landing on top of the form and like i'm tapping around and i'm blindfolded and that's the only way that i could paint is just by feeling or my way around the form and then huh. what if this brush stroke were to break that and go in front of the form what if a brush stroke were to create emptiness and replicate the color of the background or what if the background was just showing through entirely and it created a window into the background so I want I want to create space behind the figure and in front of the figure, inside of the figure. 
And I also mm -hmm. want to use arbitrary color. I want to use truthful color. I want, um, I, I want to use arbitrary values and truthful values as well. I, and I, I like to also think of, um, just jamming everything that I like into a painting, even though it might be sort of, it might have like too much variation or it might be too busy. That's just the kind of work that I like to produce. Um, but yeah, it, they're actually, um, this painting is called the throne and they're all sitting on top of a throne that's made out of, uh, electrical junk that I had, um, I had photographed in San Francisco. I painted this painting and finished it this year. Uh, okay. But they're all on top of this sort of, um, weird like electrical junk and it, it kind of looks like maybe they're like on a like on a ship or something like there's there's like all sorts of different things that you could draw from it but at the end it's it's back to um it's back to duchamp in a way like they're yeah. they're sitting on top of this uh electrical equipment that has a function to it and they're using this like electrical junk as a throne um, yeah. Okay. That's interesting because, you know, one of the things about abstract that I find so difficult is knowing where to start, where to finish. It's so non-objective. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's like a sport with no rules. You know, it's like you, you're thrown out in the middle of this field with no goals and, and, and uh, just some random balls and they're just like okay now play it's like what play what you know cool. that's how abstract feels to me but are you are are you taking these objects like this electrical pile of electrical equipment and are you using that as a way to enter into this non-objective area of art to give you something like a starting point so that it's not completely arbitrary from the start it's different every time really uh, sometimes i like to uh go into the painting where i feel like i'm like juggling chainsaws yeah. right where yeah. it's like it's like well this is just a, a white canvas and i am just gonna make something out of it and later i'm gonna figure out what that is but at the moment i have no clue so i have paintings like that um, and I also have paintings where I'll, I'll collage on Photoshop. I have, uh, I have like the, the whole like Adobe creative cloud, like on yeah. my computer yeah. stuff, but I find that, um, it's too, it's too literal for me. So what I actually do is even, even though I have the, the paid version of Adobe creative cloud, I actually use the free version, uh, more. Uh, so on my, on my phone, I have like, um, like a stylus and everything. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just painting digitally and collaging using Photoshop mix, Photoshop fix, Photoshop express, um, and, uh, and Lightroom. And I'm using, I'm just going back and forth between like Photoshop fix and Photoshop mix and back and forth. And the quality ends up being ridiculously bad because hmm it's just like it's just me taking a screenshot and then throwing it into like another program and throwing a, doing a screenshot and then another program 
And then by the time I'm done, I'm, I end up with this like uh, pixelated kind of idea of how I want the painting to look. And I find that that sort of um, unclear way of working helps me then say, well, I have the choice to make this what it is or make it something else. It's pixelated enough for me not to be a slave to it. Because some, sometimes we zoom in on an eye and it's like, oh my gosh, we could see like this like crisp square highlight on the sclera that like looks exactly like the 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 window. Yeah. Uh, every last like, pane is showing, like, yeah. Yeah, it's like every pore is there. And um I've I've never been one to um to like truly care so much about artists that like render every single pore. Right. Uh, I mean I I I appreciate their work, of course. And some of their work, I'm like, whoa, that's ridiculous. That's like really well done. But I've I've never been so keen to to want to work that way myself, where right. it's like every pore has like it's like a follicle is coming out of it, and there's like a highlight on the follicle. It's like, it's like no, <laughs> I just I just want to have some openness um, yeah. to the work. Yeah. Hmm. Dang it! I was hoping that was the case because. I'm so intimidated by the the lack of objectivity in modern or in, in abstract painting. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Tell me about this one. What was the inspiration for this painting? So I, uh, this painting's named the forest and, um, I had done a, I had done a painting when I was, uh, something like nine years old. Uh, it was done with um, <clears throat> pastels. So I guess it wasn't technically a painting, but it was like colored pastels. And um, the work was called Mighty Forest and it had a river and it had um, like different sort of nature elements in it, but it was done from my head. So you couldn't really tell what it was. And I realized Although I wasn't at all looking at that work or even thinking of it, after I painted this painting, I looked at both of them side by side, the image of that painting that I did when I was nine. And this painting and the composition was really similar. And and the, the there was like the same kind of river flowing through the work. Like you could see... Um, it almost looks like there's like a like a river going through um like underneath both of them in a way mm -hmm. uh from the top all the way to the bottom and then maybe there's like a smaller stream to the very far right of the work coming through diagonally and and then the the colors like instead of like um like a nature green it's more like um i call it like van gogh's acid green cuz van gogh made um an interior uh work where it was like his his bedroom and it was done with an acid green and no one wanted to buy it everyone thought it was an extremely distasteful color mm. that and he he wanted to use that to pay the rent and and you and you thought that probably. choosing a green that no one wanted to buy was a smart move <laughs> yeah i mean i i really <laughs> love this acid green color <laughs> um 
Yeah, I thought it was a smart move. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I think it's Again, great. You're talking about this kind of mustard color right here, right? Yeah, yeah, that that kind of mustard. Yeah, okay. It's like a like a like a yellow um and then at times it kind of becomes a little more like electric green, but yeah. it's kind of like a like an ugly yellow, right? Yeah. Um but I actually but really like, like that I, color. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like it to be this like weird acid kind of color. And, um, but yeah, again, I, I wasn't thinking of Van Gogh's um, bedroom and I, I wasn't thinking of my uh, my work that I did when I was a kid. It Those are things that I just, after I painted it, I was like, oh, maybe I was subconsciously thinking of Van Gogh, or maybe I was subconsciously kind of returning back to that scene that I'm that I made um, as a kid. So yeah, it was it was something something. Um, the connections I look for them after I do the work. I don't look for the connections as I'm doing the work. As I'm doing the work, I'm following my intuition, and I'm trying to be as faithful to my intuition as, as possible. And there's a sort of sporadic quality to intuitive painting that a lot of people fear because there are no um, set boundaries. There, there isn't any limitations. You're not painting within the lines, right? You're, it's not, it's not a coloring book. It's not color by number. It's, it's that you're coming up with a scene without knowing what the scene is at all. And mm -hmm. people see this work as, as like they're standing up and like wind is flowing through her hair and other people see it as they're laying down. I see it as laying down. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. It's, oh, it's a beautiful piece. Thank you. So this is great. Oh my goodness. There's, <laughs> there's these strokes down here. It's like, what what i don't i i can't get my head around it that you put all this work into this face and then you're like i think i'll just put these three big purpley pink strokes in here i mean it works but again back to my original thought it's just it takes a lot of guts yeah and also uh there was there was a lot of pressure involved with this painting because um i did it from life in three hours so it was hmm. a la prima, and if if you're if you're sort of uh, you know breaking the picture plane and then painting it back in and destroying a part and then painting that part back in, you you end up saying, well, how how much can I destroy and then reinvent or like how, like how can I pull this off in, in three hours, right? Whereas like. If I'm doing a study and I'm like, I have three hours to make this really feel like a real person and 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 that's it. Um I almost I almost feel like okay, I can go from point A to point B. Um i it's like on some other primas I fail, on some I can sort of pull it off. But when when I'm doing my own work, my own style, my own voice um as an ala prima it becomes this sort of thing where 
I just have to accept that this this whole thing can just go completely wrong mm-hmm. and, and embrace that. And um, I think when you lose the fear, you also lose the inner angst and it starts to become that you're living in the moment, right? Um, if, if I'm making a, uh, like a stroke, like one of the strokes that like are on her shirt where they're just like completely arbitrary, they're, they're kind of going in and out of the picture plane in this sort of way. I, as I'm doing it, I'm like in that moment, as I'm creating it, I'm really experiencing that. Whereas sometimes when I'm doing uh, a study, I find that it's like, it's like, oh, I've, I've rendered things, um, you know, back and forth, beginning to end uh, so many times that I almost feel like I could like, I could like close my eyes and like make like a, like a strip across the form to like express the volume. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, it kind of gets me out of the headspace a little bit. But if I'm, if I'm like, I want to make this thing feel real but I also want it to feel like myself, then I have to be there for myself to create it. Whereas if I'm doing a work that isn't so much like myself, I can, I can not show up. I can, I can just be like an autopilot. Like I'm just going to turn the form and not be, not be present. And, and like, if, if I, if I follow every single rule in the rule book, I, I think I could pull it off. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes when I work that way, it kind of gets me out of, out of the moment. It gets me out of being present. So, so I find that my, my work involves a sort of meditative state where it's like, whoa, that's an obnoxious, uh, brushstroke. <laughs> like, like I'm snapped back into reality. And then, and then I, I make a passage of form and I'm like, I think I could paint that passage of form better. It, it doesn't feel like it's capturing the form well enough. And, and then I, I like keep really trying to investigate that. Um, and, and all these sort of, uh, ways that I, that I use to paint the same thing it it sort of causes me to live in different mindsets at the same time. Maybe it's, maybe it's from, um, my, my upbringing. I've, I, I was born, uh, speaking two languages, like uh, bilingual Spanish and English. Mm-hmm. And I always felt I'm like maybe trapped between two. two <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want, I actually um, was going to ask you that question a while back if you were bilingual, because I, yeah, made, I yeah. made that same connection that you're, you, you are, because you had said the term or the phrase speaking two languages earlier in our conversation. And I wondered that. Yeah. So my, um, my parents and my big sister, they're from Argentina and I was born in LA and my little sister in LA. So, hmm. um, so I always felt like I'm, I'm like part of two different worlds. Hmm. Um, like I, I don't have family in the United States anymore and neither does my, my wife, like with my family, they all moved back and, um, and my, and my wife moved to the United States. So basically I, I feel that 
I always felt that there was like this inner conflict of like, like, who am I? Am I Argentinian or am I from the US? And I'm like, well, I'm clearly from the US because I was born in the US. But then also my, my parents really uh, sort of uh, raised me Argentinian. So then I just always felt like I'm living these two different worlds. So may maybe there's some sort of, uh, some sort of tie in there where it's like, like I'm, I like bringing worlds together. Yeah. Okay. That brings up a thought. So merging two worlds I've seen, as you know, you'd mentioned that you like that painting of Juju. Um, and yeah. so, you know, that I've also tinkered with this abstract relationship to the figure and, mm -hmm. um, and I was, I mean, clear back in 2002, I was experimenting with it. I've kind of, I don't do much with it anymore, although I miss it. But one thing, yeah. but I've always been drawn to it. And, um, but one thing I've found that was difficult is merging those two worlds in a seamless way. And I've seen lots of work out there and I can't even think of an example right now, but you know, as you said, in Instagram, you're constantly flooded with work. I've seen lots of people experimenting with this, some better than others, but oftentimes there's this disconnect between the realism and the abstraction, almost like, almost like the artist is painting an abstract painting and then slapping a figure on top of it, or they'll paint an abstract painting, slap a figure on top of it, smear a few strokes through the face, call it done. And there's this, there's this disconnect between the two worlds. I'm not seeing that right. with yours at all. Like yours seem, yours seem really cohesive. So have you developed, first of all, have you thought much about this or are we going back to intuition again? Is this entirely intuition? And if you have thought about it, have you come up with certain rules or devices that prevent you from making that mistake where these two worlds sort of feel in conflict with one another. Yeah. And I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and on the flip side, there's also, um, like the, like the, the real realism painter who like, like breaks an edge and at the very ending of the painting, it's like, it's like, Oh, I just broke an edge. Like, yeah, <laughs> like that was intense. Like I just broke the edge, and and it was like after I painted the whole painting, I did it. I got it over with. Now it's a little bit more uh, expressive. So there, there's like there's like the flip side where um, you know it might not feel ex expressive if 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 it's done in a certain way. That's not part of the process, right? Because if if you right. paint the whole painting, break an edge it's not a part of the process that's not necessarily how you constructed the work and um oh I my find god you're that, ringing, this is like this is like music to my ears what you're saying i'm gonna i don't want i don't mean to cut you off but i've thought so much about this stuff go ahead and finish your thought of course i i feel like on like an um, if it's genuine then that means that you are using you are using whatever elements whatever uh abstraction or realism or whatever techniques that you have to construct a painting if it's genuine and you're constructing the painting using the things that you really feel interest you 
and and are truthful to you if that's the way that you're making the painting i feel like that's how it's going to end up being you but if you make uh an abstract work and you smudge the face um because you don't you don't necessarily have the technical ability to to like paint a face and you're like okay if i smudge the face then there's no way that they'll find that out i think that's not being so truthful to oneself unless unless if you know that method really is what you're going after and and it couldn't be any other way uh but then also um like like the flip side where i was saying painting the whole painting and then breaking an edge so i feel like constructing the whole painting in the way that you feel is is most truthful to yourself that is when you get the outcomes that you're looking for but if if you're painting out of a place of fear where it's like well if i'm painting uh expressively or loosely and i'm and i'm scared and i'm fearful to make these brush strokes and it doesn't feel right then then maybe it's just not it's not you maybe it, maybe it means that um you are actually one that should express the world in a more virtuous manner or someone's abstract and and they feel like elements are are missing from the work and they want to bring in some more realistic elements into the work i feel like if if they really struggle with it and they're like okay i'm just i'm just going to mess around with the face until um you know it looks good i also feel like something in there is is possibly it's possibly limiting uh where maybe they should explore the foundations to understand how to paint a face and then maybe there's uh maybe the face is going to be all abstract but there's going to be some sort of elements in there that can demonstrate that they're having a good time doing this that they're not suffering because of a lack of ability um so so yeah i i find that process is is key like if you're if you're suffering during the process you're not having a good time and you're being fearful to break an edge or to be too loose or or vice versa um to be too realistic i think all those limitations that we set on ourselves they they can cause us to not make the type of work that it, that truly makes us who we are so um i like i like variation and i appreciate so many different types of artwork and to be truthful to myself i almost feel like i need to uh, pay homage to um all the art that i love and everything that interests me and then i just paint intuitively without thinking of other painters or anything i i don't have any reference material like on the walls of um of anything that can influence me i like to just uh paint completely from uh an an intuitive uh empty sort of place where the subconscious uh guides me rather than the conscious thought um guides me i, I i've i've seen artist studios where like all over the walls are like mag magazine cutouts and and uh different paintings that 
they enjoyed um, and they printed out the images. And I, I find that, um, that that's a wonderful way to work as well. But I, I just don't have any, any sort of influence inside of my painting studio of, um, of, of any uh, sort of fashion or installation or, or, or anything. Um, hmm. So that I could just paint from a place of, of purity. So I could try to find myself in, in the painting rather than Frankensteining other artists into it. Um, okay. Which is valid, you know. You yeah, I mean, we all do that to some degree, right? We're all, I mean, obviously you're influ you've named some of your influences. I've got influences. So let me make, let yeah. me see if I understand you correctly. So I, I don't, I'll be honest with you. I don't love this answer because I was hoping for the secret to painting, but yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what I think I'm hearing you say is that if you're not being completely authentic and or, or completely um, genuine in every stroke that you put down and making a decision, a design decision and some sort of aesthetic decision that is completely your own, you're just going to be cutting and pasting different styles together and it's going to feel somewhat contrived. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it feels it feels contrived if you're being very literal about Frankensteining styles. Right. Uh, but it'll also feel very contrived if if you have such a fear of expression um that when you attempt it you attempt it when it's most safe. Yeah. Okay. On the, side, on the flip side, you you attempt realism while you're doing abstraction because it feels most safe to do it in a certain manner, where the, like the ears and the silhouette of the head are painted very well, but then all the facial features are just like buffed out. Or right. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, if you're doing it from a place of of fear, like oh, I'm I'm gonna I'm going to, you know, mess out uh, something that I don't know how to paint well, but I wish I could. Or so using abstraction to, to hide your weaknesses is what you're saying. To hide your weaknesses, yeah. Yeah. If, if you're doing it to hide your weaknesses, then that's not truthful um, to yourself. If right. You're, if you're doing it um, because you're not hiding your weaknesses, then more power to you. And and also if if like if you're doing abstraction only when it's the most safest time to do it as a realism painter, then maybe you're not being yourself either. Uh but but again, uh anything in art goes. <laughs> so, yeah. So that could be the right way to work for you also. <laughs> yeah. But I, I know. I like to question that. I like to question uh, process because um, if, I, I mean, yes, I was in art school for 11 years, but of course I didn't, I didn't fully resolve um, how to paint uh, a figure uh, all the way to the point that I wanted to paint a figure, right? And, and same with abstraction. I, I studied under uh, abstract painters, many. Uh, I, I took night classes in abstraction while I was at the atelier. And 
I I didn't fully explore that either, uh, all the way to the extent that I would want to, because of course in realism you could take a whole lifetime in in just trying to figure out how to paint something really well and and make a, a beautiful artwork just by doing that, and uh, and also with abstraction to investigate that your whole life could be a whole life's journey. So at some point, you know, we have to say, okay, we can we can investigate the things that we love, and that's going to take a whole lifetime, of course. Um, but to to like take the plunge and not to be scared of it is such an important part of of making the artwork we want to make. I find that there's so many artists out there that that talk to me about their fears and it's i i can i can feel i could truly feel how they're limiting themselves i i hear i hear uh animators or illust like or people that are illustrators that feel like they're not making the types of paintings that they want to make and i'm i'm like just just do what feels virtuous if that means that you're going to put illustration inside of your paintings then go for it and I'll get answers like, well, I always wanted to do that, but I never thought that I, that it could be possible. And it's like, you know, we only have one life. So, yeah. so just kind of, if you love illustration and you love painting, mix them. Or if you like animation and you like painting, mix them. If, if you like abstraction and you like realism, you can, you can mix that too. Um, I've, I've heard, uh, I, I've had, uh, people that make beautiful uh, renditions of the natural world in such an authentic way um, that I, and, and like, like such a truthful way that I'm, I'm like, I'm like, wow, no one can really um, like, I, I can't really put my finger on just how impressive that is. And then they'll, they'll tell me, well, you know, I actually always wanted to explore a little bit outside of my comfort zone. And I was thinking of doing different subject matter. I was thinking of making something a little bit looser, or I was thinking of doing narrative painting. And all of a sudden, um, like, it's like this artist is, is like truly uh, coming out and, and telling me uh, in a very vulnerable way, all like the sort of inner angst and fears of um of exploring mm -hmm. and with art and and i'm 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 just like you know you you have to you have to really go for it um so some of these artists it's like they've been painting for like 50 years and yeah. it's like and they'll they'll tell they'll tell me like that they feel these things and i'm like i'm like wow like i was feeling that last week <laughs> like and they're feeling this you know 50 years into painting so um what i could say is is that you know you want you want to really just do anything you possibly can to create a little bit of a stir. If you feel too comfortable, uh, you know, if, if, if you're in the water and you're ankle deep, maybe you should be in the water shoulder deep, even if that feels a little bit 
strange and a little uncomfortable um, because pa painting to be safe, I don't quite think is um, why we paint. I think we paint because first off, we're we're obviously all, we all have some sort of little rebellion towards uh, the system because mm -hmm. it's, we have, we have a very strange, you know, freelance uh, kind of way of living um, that is very different from uh, the safe profession. So if we have an unsafe profession, then why try to turn it into something that's safe? If uh, that was our, that, mm. that was the reason why, you know, we went into it from the beginning. So then I just try to be the, the kid inside that, that says, well, I'm going to try to make this thing unsafe and see what happens. And I have so much more fun when it's unsafe um, because at the end of the day, you put the painting on the gallery wall and probably the painting that you disliked the most is the one that sells first. I know you can so never tell. You can never yourself. tell. Well, so just to be clear, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not saying be a little unsafe for the sake of being different or making a statement. You're saying it for your, in order to push yourself to uncomfortable places and explore your own potential. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. If if uh, if you if you do one thing and you're really good at it and that's all you want to do for the rest of your life, but there's some curiosity in you that wants to explore otherwise, I feel like you should explore it. Uh, and um, and so that's why I really do feel like in painting, I prefer to try everything that isn't me so that I could find out what me is. Because if, if I find out that I, I can, I can set up a model on a stand and I can make a, a sort of study of that figure and, and I can really figure it out. Um, and I want, and I want to just do that for the rest of my life. I find that, you know, first off, I think that's that's an amazing journey to have. But I would want to have that journey only if I've tried everything else and realized that everything else is, is not who I am. And I whittle it down until I finally end up uh, with who I am. So I've I've I feel like I've tried so many different things that I've I've kind of whittled everything off until I find, found out sort of who I am. And I, 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 of course, I don't know who I am entirely and, and we never know who we are. It's like, it, it's also a life journey, but, but I do, I do, um, I have bumped into people where they're like, they're like, oh, I, I thought you were, uh, I thought you were like a retired artist or something. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. I've gone through so many phases in in my life as a painter, they're like, like I thought you were retired already because it like it seems like you figured something out and that you were sick of something else and like you you ended up at this, and it's like I I ended up at it because I tried to expedite the process. I feel 
I tried to expedite the process of, um, you know, it's like maybe, maybe it took um, Turner 30 years, uh, but I just want to be myself now. That's how I felt. But this name, this may not be where you end up too. This, this is probably not, it's probably not going to be where I end up. Yeah. That, that's absolutely true. I, I could, I could just go um, full circle or I could go in waves or I could end up somewhere else completely. Um, I could end up being an installation artist. I don't know. I have yeah. no clue. I can't wait but, to um, see where you go. Cause you have evolved a lot in your short time as a student and painter, you know, and the other thought I had when you were talking is what if we, as artists, we always talk about authenticity and being who we are. And, and I, I know all those things I think are valuable to talk about, but what if, what if who we are, or at least who you and I are, um, is, is, um, anything we want to be, you know, cause you talked yeah. earlier about how you have all of these interests um, and you've wanted to explore all of them. I've had a similar experience where every day I wake up in the morning and I think about 50 different things that I want to do that day. And they're all different mediums, different, you know, different projects, different, you know, what have you. And yeah. um, it's almost like at some point I realized I just need to pick something. Like just need mm -hmm. to, just need, I like all of this stuff and I just need to pick something because there isn't just one right answer. Have you come exactly. to that place yet? Or is that just me? Uh, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm scatterbrained and I have all these different ideas Yeah, and I have this process of uh, getting them out to the canvas to where it's sort of like process of elimination where um, the, the image that it's, that is inside of my head, if it lasts the longest, then that's the one I'm going to paint. Okay. That's, and, and I would have, I have the, the same way. experience. Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the one that sticks. It's like when the you're going to buy something expensive, my wife always says, just sit on it for a little while. It's like, and then if you're still interested in a week, then buy it. That's it. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. I feel the same way. It's like you have all these things floating around in your head. And um, yeah, it's like after a certain point, you're like, oh, wait a second. I actually liked that work because I like that the artist that makes similar work to that, but that's not me. And I don't feel that that's who I am. And I don't feel like I want to make a painting that looks like that. I just like work that looks like that but it's not the work that I want to make. Um, so I wouldn't like it yeah. if I made work, but I would like it if the artist that I like made that work. Um, yeah. so, and, so then the process of elimination, it, it's like then the work that is more true to yourself sort of stays. And, and that's when, um, that's when you feel like, okay, then we have to do this. We have to, get this out of our system and like onto the canvas. Yeah. You have wisdom beyond your years. Cause I think I'm like 20 years older than you and you've, you've got a lot of this stuff figured out. I'm still working on, but <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I, when I discovered Kim Jong-gi, it's sad to oh, see that yeah. he's gone. But when I, when I discovered him yes. a few years back, I was like obsessed. 
which is so yeah. far removed from what I do. And I found myself trying in sketchbooks to draw out of my head the way Kim Jong-E could do it. And I can't do it. Not like, no, who can draw like him? I mean, is there anybody? I, I don't know. Um, no, that's ridiculous. But I was obsessed for probably six months or something in becoming like Kim Jong-E. And, uh, yeah. and then at some point I realized, I just need to, I just need to stick with something. <laughs> Like, yeah. I just, I just need to keep going in the direction I'm going and stop trying to be everything and anything at the same time. So that's why yeah. I asked that question kind of, you put it perfectly scatterbrained. I guess that's a good description. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And I actually, right now at the moment, I'm in a sort of phase where, um, I have this idea to make, um, little sculptures of flowers mm -hmm. and paint from them and also include the flowers like inside of a diptych kind of format uh, where I have the painting next to a diptych of flowers that are hand sculpted. Um, and that, that has lasted in my head for about a month now. So I feel like it's about time for me to manifest that. So yeah, it's, it, it's this thing where it's like, well, if I do that, am I going to still be who I am? And I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I will, but, um, but yeah, I, I wonder, it's like, it's like, yeah, Kim Jong-ji, like I, um, I was, when I was taking illustration classes in San Francisco, I was like, that was like the primary person that I was looking at. It was like, whoa, <laughs> this guy's ridiculous. like, yeah. wow the the perspective and it's like he's like rendering like these like scrunched up soda cans like on the sidewalk like or not rendering but like he's like doing this like amazing line work and like all the all the things in it um it ju it just feels like he like really figures out these worlds and does them from their head um from his head and i feel like yeah, who knows? Maybe there's a little bit of that in your work. <laughs> yeah. And you want to... <laughs> yeah. Who knows? <laughs> I had to try it for six months before I realized I'll never be Kim Jong Gi. And you yeah. know, and that's not to say that I I'm down I'm I'm not saying that from a negative place. Like I can't be as good right. as him. But I it took me six months to realize that I'm not him and that's not where I need to be. But I know if sometimes I guess like you said earlier in the conversation, you just need to try everything everything to yeah. know who you are exactly yeah yeah that was that's yeah. good advice actually so now i don't feel so bad about getting hung up on kim jong-gi for six months <laughs> no yeah it's like you you wouldn't understand that you're this much in your own shoes now had you not gone through the experience right of maybe not being yourself for a bit yeah yeah perhaps the danger yeah. is not going outside of what you're doing um ever so you you have no room to grow yeah yeah exactly then then you you've never even tried on your own shoes you're just wearing everyone else's shoes <laughs> yeah 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 man well this has been a great conversation i really pre appreciate you coming on the podcast yeah thank you so much for having me on here thanks for tuning in to the undraped artist podcast if you enjoyed it subscribe and if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. 
Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.